0: Honor the victims, celebrate the heroes.
1: That's Genius Book Publishing's approach to true crime. Covering some of the most important cases in crime worldwide, our books never glorify the killers, and the authors work tirelessly to bring the bad guys to justice. From the Melissa Witt case, all the way to the Golden State Killer and the Zodiac, if you're looking for solid, meticulously researched, thrilling true crime, Look no further than Genius Book Publishing's catalog of titles. Visit GeniusTrueCrime.com for the best true crime books available. Also available on Amazon, Kobo, Barnes & Noble, and iTunes. Lockhart here.
0: And I'm LaDonna Humphrey. Welcome to Deep Dark Secrets, the podcast that brings light to dark places. Today we'll be shining some light on another murder case connected to the death fetish community the murder of Diane Hollick by fetisher Patrick Anthony Russo. Diane Hollick was a beautiful blonde. She had so much to look forward to. She was 42 years young at the time of her murder. And she was a homeowner living in the Great Hills subdivision of Austin, Texas. She worked from home before it was the cool thing to do. And she was a supervisor at IBM, so she had a great career. Her role had to do with managing new college hires for IBM, and I think that would be a lot of fun, getting to work with college students.
1: Yeah, people just starting out in their career, just enthusiastic people, I would imagine. Yeah, I I think it
0: takes a special person to work with brand new entry-level college students. So I kind of think that she must have been a lot of fun. That would be a very special job by someone who would be upbeat and really wanting to teach people that were coming in to the company. So it kind of helps me get to know her a little bit, thinking about her in that way. She had a lot of great things going on in her life. She had recently listed her house, which she lived in alone, for sale with a realtor for four hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, so she was making,
1: for that, time. yeah,
0: she was making bank at her job, I mean, had a really nice home, clearly a nice salary that went with it, and she was just so excited about putting this house up for sale because she was engaged to be married Aww. and she was ready to move to Houston, Texas, where her fiance lived, and it's just really sad how the story goes because she didn't get to do that I mean this story unfolds and you will see how it ruined her fiance's life and all of you know the people's lives that touch them i mean it's really sad it's awful
1: it makes me so angry that this man who had a death fetish decided to take that from her and from her fiance it's terrible so this was happening november 15th 2001 we're going to travel back to this time frame and that was a really bad day for Diane because it was the day that she was murdered. It started out like any other day for her. She was working from home. And like usual, she was in pretty frequent contact with her coworkers and the people that she managed. There was a woman named Cynthia that was a coworker of hers who was also working remotely from California. And they had had a phone call around 12.30 p.m., And as they talked about work, Diane had casually mentioned that there was a man that had just left her house. And, yeah, chilling. So this man had seen a for sale sign in Diane's front yard. And he pulled over and stopped. And he knocked on her door to talk to her about the house.
0: I'm starting to
1: feel really
0: uncomfortable because i've heard about so many people that have been murdered because they had their house up for sale and somebody randomly stopped by to see the house
1: these are opportunists you know he's a predator he knocks on the door and diane answers she lives home alone she invites this man inside to talk about the house which you know that's never a good idea. If you're a woman living alone, you probably want to have a realtor with you or something.
0: Yeah, I think this should be like a cautionary tale to single women, women living alone, so they know how to keep themselves safe. And you know the facts about the crimes that do happen around real estate transactions, because that really is a thing. It happens a lot. I'm sitting here just thinking of five or six crimes that I know that happened that are very similar to what you're going to continue to talk about. They were either showing their own house or they were a realtor showing another house. So it is a cautionary tale.
1: I think too, as a woman, we're a lot of times we're expected to be soft, polite, accommodating. And I could imagine Diane in this situation, she wants to sell her house. She probably was just trying to be helpful and show him the inside of her house and talk about this deal. But that obviously turned out to be very dangerous for her. So I'll just kind of jump back in. She's on the phone with her coworker Cynthia, and she's telling her about this man. And she's really excited. She's like, oh, he came in. We talked about the house. He was super eager to make an offer. He talked about making a cash offer. And Diane just felt like her house was pretty much as good as sold. The man had said that he was going to come back and that he would be bringing his wife with him to view the house and that they'd probably go ahead and make a cash offer at that point. And when you're selling your house, you want that cash offer. It makes things go so much faster.
0: Absolutely. And a 435000 cash offer is even better. So I can imagine how excited she was.
1: Yeah, I think that this guy knew the right things to say. He name-dropped that he had a wife. I'm sure that made her feel comfortable. So Cynthia's hearing this, and she's kind of responding like we are. She's feeling worried. And she tells Diane that it's not a good idea to let strangers into her home when she's home alone. So good on Cynthia. She's a good coworker and a good friend.
0: Yeah, we and need more people like Cynthia in the world.
1: For sure. So Diane hears Cynthia and it sounds like she hadn't really thought of it that way. And she ends up looking down at her hand and she realizes that her engagement ring isn't on her finger. And she starts to freak out. She feels worried about it because she's like, this guy just came into my house and now I can't find my engagement ring. She puts the phone down and she goes looking for it and Thankfully, she's able to locate her ring. She had just taken it off for a second. So she gets back to the phone, picks it up, and tells Cynthia, oh, everything's fine. My engagement ring's still here. Everything's good. And they get off the phone at about one thirty. Just
0: seems like a bad omen. Mm-hmm. Diane's phone records indicate that she did have another phone conversation at 3.30 p.m. I couldn't find out who that call was with, so maybe that just wasn't released in this case. But we do know that she had that conversation, and then she shut her computer down at 3.59 p.m. And then, and I think I said earlier, her losing the ring was a bad omen. I feel like this is a another bad omen. There was a violent thunder and rainstorm that just descended upon Austin, Texas, right about this time of day. And so it's pouring rain. And around 5 p.m., Robert Hebner, who was Diane's neighbor, was coming home and saw a gold or brown van parked in front of Diane's house and he just assumed that Diane had a potential buyer at her home so he didn't think a lot of it
1: i'm sure the neighbors were like oh the house is for sale there's going to be a lot of weird cars that we don't know coming around
0: yeah and plus it's raining and storming and it's the end of the day i just imagine he was hurrying to get home and just didn't think a lot of it but the next day on november 16th diane's coworkers start to kind of get concerned and perplexed because she missed a scheduled meeting and nobody could reach her by email or telephone. And this was, yeah, this was very unlike her because she was a supervisor and she was known to be pretty prompt and was there to help guide this team. And one of her coworkers was aware of the storm in Diane's area the night before. And so they had the forethought to call the Austin police department to do like a welfare check on Diane. They wanted to make sure she was okay.
1: That's
0: nice. It is. She had some great people that cared about her. So they called the Austin Police Department and Austin police officers arrived at Diane's house at around 5:30 p.m. to check on her. All the doors and the windows were locked and one of Diane's neighbors and realtor had a key to the house and the- They decide to let the police in. They're still going to see this through. They want to make sure that Diane's okay.
1: I'm glad that they did that. They knocked on the door. She didn't answer. So they decided to see if she was okay in there. So the police, they go inside. And once they get in, they notice that Diane's dogs are really restless. They can tell they've been trapped inside for a long, long time and not been let out. These dogs had pooped on the floor. They just made a mess of the house. And so that was the first clue for police. Something is not right here. Diane would not leave her dogs like this, trapped in the house like this. So they go searching through the house, and they find Diane's body upstairs. She's in a guest bedroom, and she's face down on the floor. And she was fully clothed. And there was no evidence of a sexual assault that they could see. But they did notice that Diane's neck had ligature marks on it. So they started to look around the house, but they couldn't find any ligature inside of the house. They also noticed that her wrists were red and there were these indentations on her wrists. And the redness is an important detail because it indicates that Diane's heart was still beating. She had blood flow when her wrists were bound. And the police were looking at this particular evidence and they felt like the indentations were made by plastic zip ties. So they were looking around the house for those as well, but they couldn't find the ligature or the zip ties anywhere in the house.
0: So that's interesting. That means the killer brought those things with him, most likely, then.
1: Yeah, they weren't supplies that she had in her house, and they also were not left there. When the killer left, he took those with him.
0: Oh, that's that's frightening.
1: So the police are documenting everything, and they, they roll Diane's body over so that she's face up and they can really get a good look at her. And there's this little charm that falls out of her hair, and... When they look at other photographs of Diane later on, they can see that that charm was like a pendant of a necklace that she usually wore, but the whole necklace was gone and just that little charm had broken off of it. And they also were able to determine that there were other rings that she usually wore every day on her fingers, including her engagement ring, which was valued at $17,500. Wow. Yeah, she had a very nice engagement ring, and she had multiple other pieces of jewelry that she wore every day that were gone. And in addition to those being gone, there was a jewelry box that was missing from her master bedroom.
0: So not only did this fetisher get into her house, and he has this death fetish, but he's also a thief?
1: Well, yeah, I find this interesting because I could easily see somebody with a death fetish killing a woman and then saying, Oh, maybe I should make this look like a robbery.
0: Or maybe I could keep a trophy or two or three.
1: A couple of really nice, you know, $20,000 trophies. I mean, it's hard to say whether this was a robbery and a death fetish being fulfilled, but it's definitely interesting. Another thing that they took was the spare front door key that had a ribbon on it that usually she kept hanging in her house. So that's kind of creepy, too. They took the key. Maybe they wanted to come back.
0: Yeah, like they weren't expecting her body to be found so soon. Maybe the fetisher felt like, well, she lives alone, so I can come back and visit the scene many times before it's discovered That I've killed her.
1: Yeah, when we get into some of these death fetish fantasies, some of them are super hardcore into necrophilia. So it wouldn't surprise me if her killer wanted to come back and visit her body.
0: Yeah, it's awful.
1: Diane had an autopsy and the medical examiner determined her cause of death to be homicide by ligature strangulation. So... We know that that's how she died. And the time of death was estimated to be between 3 p.m. on November 15th and 3 a.m. on November 16th. So that was a big window of time, but they felt confident saying that she died between those hours. It's kind of creepy to think back now. Her neighbor saw that van there at her house at 5 p.m. when that big thunderstorm rolled in or shortly after the thunderstorm. So that's definitely suspicious that that van was there at that time.
0: I'm thinking fetisher van. That's just what pops in my head. It just seems creepy. Very, very creepy. And police, of course, they had to look at some suspects. Obviously, some of the most common suspects are the people that are closest to the murder victim. And in this case, it would have been Diane's fiance. He needed to be cleared as well as a friend that was a little obsessive about her. So that's kind of interesting. So She had those situations that had to be ruled out, and they were both eventually ruled out. And as they continued their investigation, police heard some interesting information about her neighborhood. On the day Diane was murdered, five other Great Hills residents with for sale signs in their yards had been approached by a man driving a tan-colored van who claimed to be interested in buying their homes. That is. Horrifying to me. He was shopping for a victim.
1: Yeah, he was cruising around in his van. Uh. I'm going to call it his
0: fetisher van because that's exactly (laughs) what it was. And he would knock on their doors and ask to come inside. He wanted to see the floor plan and he rejected the suggestion of coming back with a realtor.
1: I love that that's mentioned because that's what we were just talking about, that if you're home alone, you should say, hey, buddy, come back with a realtor. This isn't cool.
0: I know things have changed since even this murder was committed. And maybe people are more suspicious in a real estate situation. But I think I would have said, no, you're not coming in. I'm not even sure I would necessarily answer the door at this point to somebody. I don't know if I'm you know, living alone and And my house is for sale. But maybe that comes with the knowledge that I have working in true crime that I know of all the murders that get committed. But it's just a scary, scary situation. And what makes it even scarier is that all of the other residents that this man approached that day, Alicia, they were women.
1: That is so creepy. How does he know? I mean, he must have been watching the neighborhood.
0: I think a variety of things he could have done. Property records. Most property records are free to look at. He could have looked at that and seen that they were owned by women. He could have simply been stalking the women in the neighborhood. I mean, there's a lot of things he could have been doing. None of them give me any peace of mind (laughs) to know that this man was that calculated. And he was because he even had a story for every single woman that he saw. And it was the same one that he had told Diane is that he was going to return with his wife on the weekend to see the house because he had recently sold a ranch or some sort of property and he wanted to make a cash offer so he was saying all the right things to these women to disarm them try to shut down those red flags that they might have otherwise had it's spooky because we know from her phone call with the coworker Cynthia that Diane told her That this man wanted to make a cash offer, that he was going to come back with his wife. So we know that that was the story that he told her, too.
1: Yeah, this has to be the same man.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It's spooky. Just really creepy. And the man had given different names to each of the homeowners that he went to talk to, which I think is interesting. I don't know why he did that, but he called himself Walter Miller to one person and then Jim Taylor to somebody else. And so this made it a little bit more difficult for police because they needed to know who he was.
1: Yeah, that's exactly why he did it. Because one lady might call in and say, well, it was Walter Miller who came to see me. And some other lady would say, oh, it was Jim Taylor. So he was trying to put some distance between him and that neighborhood. He didn't want people to figure out that it was all him.
0: This is something that he had been planning out very well on what he was going to do and how he was going to cover his tracks. the Police believed that that man who had seen all these other people that day had probably been the one that also paid Diane a visit. So he becomes this huge suspect in their minds, and they need to find him. And so there was a composite sketch made of the man based on descriptions given by the other homeowners. And that composite sketch was shared with the public.
1: That's another great clue, too, if everybody is describing this man Same vehicle, same neighborhood, same cover story. Murder
0: suspect numero uno.
1: It sounds like they put that sketch on different media sources, news channels and things. And that got them some tips and some calls. And there was a woman named Tammy Cranford who called into the police. And she was like, hey, I know this guy. He came to my house. Unsurprisingly, Tammy Cranford had a for sale sign in her yard. She said this man was driving a golden or champagne-colored van. So this is a detail that I think is kind of funny about this case. Everybody's got a different color for the van, but it's all the same. It's gold. It's tan. It's champagne. You know, you can picture it. It's like a sandy-colored murder van that he's driving.
0: Yeah, it's a fetisher van. I think I'm going to name this guy. I'm going to nickname this guy the Sale sign fetisher. That's him. That's what I'm going to call him.
1: It's him. So Tammy says that the fetisher van comes over one of the first days in November. She can't tell exactly what day it was. But it wasn't super significant to her at the time. She says that he knocks on her front door and he asks to see a floor plan of the house. And Tammy says that she notices that he's kind of nervous. She says that he's shaking, his hands are shaking, and that he's like sweating profusely.
0: Ew, that's a red flag though
1: poor Tammy, she invites this shaking, sweaty man into her home and says, okay, you can come in and look around, which, no, 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 no. Tammy goes ahead and puts her dog in a room. She's worried that the dog might attack him. So she puts him away.
0: Well, I think the dog needed to attack him.
1: Yeah, that's one of those things that makes me feel comfortable about my home. I have some big, scary dogs, and I would never put them away if I had somebody coming through my house.
0: Same here. Same here. That's just, again, cautionary tale for the people who are listening.
1: Tammy also has two very young children who happen to be down for naps while this man shows up. She's the only adult at home. Even though she is married, she's home alone with her children and her dog. Her kids are asleep. And so this man comes inside and he asks her if there's a husband or a boyfriend that he can make the deal with. Like the house, selling the house deal. Which is offensive.
0: Misogynistic much?
1: And Tammy's like, well... Uh, my husband's not home right now, and she offers the information that he's a very busy man that's not home very often. Bad idea.
0: When you've got some stranger that wants in your home, don't let him in, but don't give him this much information either.
1: She is absolutely lucky to be alive. She goes on to tell the police that this man breezed through her home. He was like looking through all the areas, and as he's looking around. Her son wakes up. She hears him crying. So she goes to her son's bedroom. And she says the man didn't stay in the living room. He follows her down the hallway to her son's room. And she picks up her son to comfort him. And this man who's right behind her, he goes to the closet door. And he opens the door up. And then she says that he drops his arms at his side and that a trance came over him. And that basically his whole demeanor changed. He started sweating even more. She said his whole body was shaking. And that he had a very strange look in his eyes. She said that his eyes looked deeper. They got bigger and darker. And she said that it almost looked like his face transformed into a different person.
0: Oh, that's creepy. And it's something that we've heard in so many of these fetish murder cases. They always talk about how the killer changes like his face seems to change
1: it's so creepy there's a who was it it was um it was Dale Bollinger from one of our cannibal kidnapper dark fetish net episodes do you remember he attacked his female friend and she said that about him she had known him for like 20 years and she just said he didn't look like Dale anymore
0: I remember that they were cooking fish or something and he suddenly attacked her it was just it's crazy but I don't know what it is about that. It's something that we've heard over and over and over. Uh, It creeps me out. Yeah, for sure.
1: I wonder if it's like some sort of disassociation or disassociative identity disorder. I wonder if that could have been at play here.
0: Yeah, I I think it's a possibility for sure.
1: So Tammy's in this room with this super creepy guy who just like shapeshifted into a murderer, basically. And she walks out of the room, and I guess the man just stays in there. He's, like, in, a, in the zone. He's in a trance. And, okay, I really don't want to make fun of Tammy, but this is the point in this story where Tammy starts to feel a little uncomfortable. <laughs> Tammy, come on. She's holding her child, and she's in the hallway like, oh, hey, there's this weird <laughs> in my son's room. And then her other kid wakes up.
0: I'm sorry. I'm like on the edge of my seat here.
1: It's chaos here. Tammy's holding one kid or other kids crying from a different room. So she goes and picks up that kid. All the while, this weird man she doesn't know is just standing there in a trance with a distant look on his face. So she goes and gets her daughter. And now she's got both of her kids. And she goes and checks in the room, and the man, he's not there anymore. And she turns around, he's right behind her. And he's still not speaking. He's still like in a weird, in a weird thing. So Tammy goes ahead and lets the dog out of the other study, the spare room, because she's thoroughly creeped out. She's starting to panic now. The man becomes verbal again, and he starts asking her repeatedly, When's your husband going to be home? When's your husband coming home?
0: And this was not, you know, creating such panic in her that she throws him out. She calls the police.
1: We all have different responses to panic because there's fight, flight, freeze, fawn. You know, Tammy might have been fawning. She might have been freezing up. Who knows? She was definitely not feeling okay at this point. The man asks if he can pet her dog and if the dog will calm down around strangers, if it's petted so he's, <laughs> he's just do, going down the checklist basically is this a good situation to murder you like
0: damn I mean he's casing her house and then he's getting all the details about dogs and husbands and everything he needs to commit this crime and I'm just like I feel like I feel like I need to talk to Tammy and make sure she learned a lesson here because I don't ever want her to do this again please don't ever do this again
1: Oh, I'm sure that she knows that now. But yeah, after the dog, he asks if there's an alarm system in the house. And Tammy goes ahead and tells him, yeah, but we don't use it. Tammy! So this guy tells her that his name is Tony. So he's got another name, you know, the third name he's given out to the people in this neighborhood. And he had come, I guess, with this like black and white flyer printed out of her house. And he sees that there's some nice colored versions of this flyer. So he puts his dumpy self-printed flyer down on the table and he takes one of the nice ones from the pile that her realtor had left there. And he says that he's going to come back with his wife to view the house again. And Tammy escapes with her life and... So things got really weird there, but then for whatever reason, he decided, no, I'm not going to do this right now. Who knows if it was the dog or her kids. I'm not really sure why he didn't act on it in that moment, but he didn't. He left her.
0: Well, and the fact that he brought that flyer with him kind of leads me to believe that he was casing the neighborhood, you know, driving through and then maybe going and doing some research. For sure. You know, on the internet to see what he could find out. But this just blows my mind. Another woman comes forward. She calls the police after seeing the sketch and she said she knew the man as Jim Taylor. So, this is one of the names they'd heard before. And he had come to view her house not one time, but two times. Oh. She noticed that he happened to appear right after her husband left for work on both of the visits, which is scary. And it did make her in- very uneasy. But that goes back to kind of our theory that he was casing the neighborhood and stalking these women. And on the second visit, she took note of the vehicle he was in. I mean, I'm just cheering for her, right? Not only did she write down that it was a tan van, she also wrote down the license plate number.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Yes, I'm really excited about that. And so using that number, the police were able to identify this Walter, Jim, Tony, furniture person.
1: Whoever you are.
0: That's right. But I've got a spoiler alert here for you. That wasn't any of his names. Really? No, he was none other than the, the one and only Patrick Anthony Russo. And he was doing his best to blend into society. He worked, this, this blows my mind, but he worked at the New Life in Christ Church in a little town. He was a worship leader and a music director. That's sick. I know. I say this, I think, every episode, but it's mind-blowing to me. I mean, now we've got a guy that's deeply entrenched in the church that's out looking to kill women.
1: Yeah, BTK was in church, too. He worked at a church.
0: Yeah, it's just, yeah, th- this guy was a predator, and what a great place to hide yourself mm-hmm. and your predatory nature than within a church. That His work at the church couldn't erase that he had a criminal record dating back to the 1990s. Okay? He liked to target rich homes to rob and he had even been involved in the kidnapping of a woman in the past. So, this was something that he liked to do. He liked to target rich women.
1: That's outrageous. But
0: I bet he's one of the reasons why that churches nowadays run background checks even for you to volunteer at the church, let alone work there.
1: Yeah, with good reason now. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we got people like Patrick. So, But Patrick had even deeper, darker secrets. Okay, it goes well beyond targeting rich homes to rob because Patrick was a member of the death fetish community. He had a kink for horror fantasy sex, and he loved to watch asphyxiation videos, videos of women being strangled and murdered. That was who Patrick Anthony Russo really was.
1: The things that you choose to spend your time doing when you're alone says so much about a person.
0: Yeah, you're right. It really does.
1: On November 21st, 2001, the police had gotten all those tips from different women who had their houses for sale. And they finally got that tip where they linked the license plate number of the fetisher van to Patrick. So they were able to go get a search warrant for Patrick's home, and they also took him into the station while they were searching his home. So one officer was questioning him about his whereabouts on November 15th, which was the day that Diane was murdered. And Patrick told the detectives that he had become lost during a big storm that happened that day. He said that he was lost in the residential area of Austin, which is where Diane lived. And he said that he stopped and asked for some directions, but that he didn't go in anyone's house and that the directions that he got were from an elderly gray-haired man. Lies. Lies.
0: Lies.
1: Then he quickly switches it up with the officers and starts talking about his church job he lets them know that he's in a christian rock band called broken silence and he says to the officers that he went and got directions in the storm when he was lost and that he was actually on his way to the knle radio station in the northwest section of austin and that he had to go there to discuss i guess like the design of his music website with somebody who was working there so he says that he got the directions and went off that way, and that he was at the radio station and knocked on the station door, and that oddly, it was all locked up and just totally vacant, that all the lights were off and nobody was there. That's his alibi, I guess, for the time frame that Diane was murdered, so they have to check it out, you know. They go to the radio station, the police do. And they talk to this man named Sherland Priest who was there that day during that big storm at the radio station. And Sherland goes on to testify that all of his employees at the radio station were there, that (laughs) all the lights were on, and that because of the storm, they had all congregated in the front lobby, which is where Patrick says he went to. That was all empty. So he said all of these employees were there in the front lobby. They were dealing with the doors, just doing some storm prep stuff for the building at -hmm. that time. And so he knew Patrick very well. And he said, you know, there were lots of us here in the front lobby. It was all lit up. We were doing some work with the door. And there's no way I wouldn't have seen him if he came here and tried to open the door.
0: Oh, uh, more lies.
1: Yeah, this is a alibi fail. There's. No evidence to prove that Patrick was anywhere near this radio station on that day.
0: I'm sorry. What a dumb.
1: Yeah. I, I guess was- he was banking on them all going home during that storm. He didn't think anyone would be there at the radio station.
0: Yeah, that's clear.
1: They didn't learn that till later, though. You know, they heard him out. They heard his alibi and they needed to check on it. And that took a little bit of time. In this interview, as it was happening in real time, Patrick, he was very manipulative. He asked the police, what motive would I have to kill a woman that I don't even know? The police, they didn't have an answer to that question. So they released him. What? Yeah, they heard him out and they did the search on his house and they needed some time to verify his alibi, to look at whatever they had found at his house, so they had to let him go. They had no idea at that point that he had been lying or that he had this deep, dark secret that he was a fetisher, a death fetisher. So he went ahead and left the police station, and he went straight to the home of his pastor.
0: What, to confess?
1: He was weaving the web of lies. He says to Pastor Fox, I'm worried that I'm going to be arrested for killing a lady.
0: Wow, that's pretty close to confession. So
1: here's a really eerie detail. Pastor Fox is thinking back. He's remembering that that day that's in question, November 15th, he remembers that they had a staff meeting where they were talking about things and that Patrick mentioned, hey, guys, you know that big storm that happened? Well, I had this monumental moment, a life-changing moment during that storm. God got my attention during that storm. It was a determining time in my life.
0: Okay, wow.
1: We know that he was likely murdering Diane at that time, and he is so sick that he's sharing with his church co-workers that he had a religious experience during that time. That's awful. Pastor, he's putting the pieces together. He's listening to Patrick talk about how he's being accused of murder on this day. And he's remembering those things that he said about that day. Patrick goes on to talk to the pastor about the interrogation from the police. He's saying, they think I killed a woman. There's some woman that got murdered. She was murdered in her home and someone took all her expensive jewelry they think I did it, and it wasn't me. It wasn't me. And it turns out that the police had not shared any details with Patrick about Diane's jewelry being taken.
0: Oh, wow. So that's a major faux pas for him because the police end up speaking to Pastor Fox, and they found out that Patrick was sharing information with him that he had had no way of knowing unless he was actually a part of the crime because they had never told him the little tidbit about the jewelry.
1: That's pretty damning.
0: It's very damning. So the police then searched Patrick's church office on November 21st, 2001, and they also obtained phone records that show that Patrick made three calls at 3.30 p.m., at 5.34 p.m., and at 5.56 p.m. on November 15th. And his location during those times originated in Northwest Austin, which is right where Diane's home was. So the police, they arrest him
1: that day. Perfect. Well deserved.
0: Yeah, I mean he pretty much did it to himself by oversharing with this pastor. So I think that's a little bit ironic that church in which he was hiding. Behind is actually what exposed his secrets and ultimately lead to his arrest.
1: Yeah, he was going out of his way to paint himself as this poor victim who was being accused of this murder that he had nothing to do with, and he just ran his mouth a little bit too much.
0: Yeah, he got what he deserved. And thankfully, the conviction process was a slam dunk. There was DNA evidence from Diane's left hand. And there was another sample from some hairs on a green towel that were found on the couch. And guess whose DNA was a perfect match?
1: Was it Jim Taylor? Was it Walt?
0: It was was our church-going, gospel-singing Patrick, the fetisher. And in addition to DNA, the police also seized Patrick's computer. Because they were looking to see if he had done any searches on Diane and they didn't find anything like that. But what they did find were 136 documents about other houses that were for sale and other real estate.
1: So you were right. He was definitely looking up people's houses and real estate records. This was a very much a plan of his to yeah. find women that were selling their houses and go murder them.
0: Yes, he was clearly very methodical. But while they're searching his computer, they also noticed that there's history on a website called, get this, necrobabes.com. You and I are very, very familiar with that horrible website.
1: It's a terrible website, and it's one of the most infamous and popular death fetish forums of its time. It's not in operation anymore, but it was one of the founding death fetish forums. It was even a paid website where people would pay for a monthly membership to be able to have access to photo sets of women being killed in various methods, strangled, hung, shot, drowned, stabbed, all sorts of different categories of death fetish were on this website. And it was a place where all these freaks were congregating as the internet became more popular in the late 90s. And this website operated through the mid-2000s. So there were many different owners. It changed hands multiple times. Some names that we can throw out are like Vicky Carr, a guy named Peter that I still see lurking around the death fetish forums. There was Joe Schwallenberg.
0: It's just, it's a horrible website. There's lots of really bad things that actually came out of it. And At the time when this happened, the police had never heard of Necrobabes. And so when they discovered this and they realized that it's a death fetish pornography website that's just all about the murder of women, they got another warrant because they wanted to explore the search history and the images. And so I think that's pretty important. And this Joe Schwallenberg, who was the man that was in charge of necrobabes.com, he was in charge of like their billing. He testified in trial that Tony Russo. with the same home and email address as Patrick Anthony Russo, purchased a six-month membership on NecroBabes on July 21st, 2001. An earlier membership had been issued on February 28th, 2001 to a Janet Russo at the same address.
1: That's hilarious. He was pretending to be a woman on the website. Yes,
0: yes. (laughs) And passwords were issued allowing entry to the website as a result of those memberships. And I think that's interesting because, and I won't go into great detail here, but one of the things that you and I have been talking about even recently offline, not on the podcast, but that there are so many of these male fetishers that go online and they take on a female persona inside these forums And I think that that's what Patrick did here with this Janet Russo account. So I thought that was kind of interesting.
1: Yeah, he starts out his membership as a woman and then he renews it. He gets a little comfortable and then he renews it as himself. As you were saying, we look on these death fetish forums and to me, it looks like it can't be more than 5% female. It really looks like it's mainly men here. And because everybody's masquerading behind a screen name, you really don't know who's on the other end of that. And I think women get a lot of attention on any, you know, like if you think about dating platforms, women are always getting flooded with messages, a lot of them inappropriate. So you can imagine if you're a woman on a death fetish forum, you're going to be getting tons of messages. And so, I could see why some of these guys would go on there and pretend to be a woman because they want to talk dirty with people about these sick murder fantasies. And so they're going to get more attention if they're pretending to be a woman.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. I still think it's a little funny because I have these undercover personas in some of these forums while we investigate. And I always pretend to be a man, so I think it's interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, because we're trying to blend in. We're not trying to get attention and extra role-playing chats, because that's gross.
0: Yeah, just call me Raphael.
1: (laughs) So Patrick is obviously a huge fan of murder porn. He is obsessed with strangulation. He wants to see it so badly that he's willing to pay for it every single month.
0: And can I add something here? He's paying for it with his church music job. Do you know how (laughs) twisted that is?
1: Yeah, he's got to make money somehow to fund this murder porn.
0: So I'm going to go sing in the choir, get paid to lead the choir, sing to Jesus, and I'm going to use that money to look at murder porn. I'm just disgusted by it. It's just...
1: It's a double I'm sorry. It is. It's horrible. So the police go into this search history... And this web history, and they find out that in November, Patrick had accessed Necrobabes for two hours, 36 minutes, and 55 seconds on necrobabes.com just for the month of November. And that is not that much time compared to some of the users that we're tracking. Some of these users spend 10, 12 hours a day in the forums, but Patrick, you know, he was out trolling for real estate victims, so, and he had a job, so maybe he didn't have as much time as some of the other members, but... I don't know. I
0: just Patrick's one of the more twisted f- that we've looked at, really. I'm really disgusted by this guy.
1: Yeah, he's gross, and he was definitely in that planning mode. He was ready to take these fantasies and make them a reality. So he accesses necrobabes.com on November 13th for a significant amount of time. And that's just two days before Diane was murdered. And that is a smoking gun. Like he's going to look at these images, these videos. He's mentally prepping himself. I think he knows at this point he's going to do it soon.
0: That was probably part of his transformational moment that he was talking about. You know, he goes from, The fantasy aspect and, you know, staring at it and dreaming about it and, you know, staying on the website to actually acting on it, that's pretty transformational.
1: Just a few days before he killed Diane, he is looking at images and videos of manual and ligature strangulation, which is exactly how he killed her. And the police discover on his computer there is 1,200. Images saved on his computer of ligature strangulation. Wow. That's just an excessive collection of death fetish pornography.
0: Yeah, that's really disturbing.
1: I'm convinced that Patrick murdered Diane. There's there's no question in my mind. And at his trial, there was a Dr. Richard Coons, who was a psychiatrist and an attorney. And so he... He was testifying as an expert in human psychology and the state considered him an expert witness in that topic. So they had him view the death fetish images that Patrick had gotten from necrobabes.com and then they had Dr. Coons view the photos of Diane's body, the crime scene photos. And this is really important because we have an expert in human sexuality here who indicates that the material from Necrobabes tended to reveal the motive for killing the victim. And Dr. Coons believes the motive for this murder was sexual sadism. And he goes on to explain that a sexual sadist is sexually stimulated in their fantasy life and that this causes them to become obsessive. He says that these people will play out their fantasies as they search for potential victims and that they're aroused by watching and controlling another person with knives or guns or just however they are fantasizing about injuring this person, including ligature strangulation. So in these encounters, Dr. Coons explains to the jury that there actually doesn't even need to be a completed sexual act. It doesn't even need to be about necrophilia for this to be a sexual act for this person. And the reason for that is that the underlying purpose is just simply to kill, to dominate, to humiliate another person. That is enough to gain sexual gratification out of it. They don't even need to rape someone. They don't even need to have sex. That Those acts are so sexually stimulating to a sadist that that is like sex that's better than sex for them
0: I don't know what to say I'm speechless just the sheer terror that brings to me hearing those things and how concerned we should be as just normal everyday citizens to hear this story and know that this stuff is going on in our communities and that these sites are still legal this story alone should help us raise up an army that says no more, we've got to stop death fetish.
1: I think it's so important to have an expert like this. Dr. Coons is telling you this is not harmless. This content is not harmless. This content is part of the obsessive process that creates sadistic murderers.
0: Yeah, it's murderers in the making. I don't think anybody's going to be surprised by this, but Patrick tried to appeal. He of said that they did. They yeah. always do. He said that the police exceeded their computer search authorization. And he said that necrobabes.com excerpts should not have ever been admitted as evidence. He also believed that his search term for asphyx, short for asphyxiation, should not have been allowed as evidence in the case.
1: This From, cracks me up. What a coward. He wants to see women strangled, but he's like, uh oh, I better not type the whole word. Uh, They're not going to know what I'm looking for here. Fucking idiot.
0: I know. and It's ironic because the fetishers always whine and cry about things like this. They don't think anyone should know about their secret fantasy life. And they don't think that their fantasy life intersects with their real life. But it does. Mm -hmm. Patrick Anthony Russo's death fetish is the reason that Diane was murdered and taken from this earth. There's no other explanation for it. And we need to be afraid of these predators and these death fetish forums because that's what they are. Their obsession with this content is a red flag that we all need to pay attention to. And I could get on my soapbox all day long about this. And I know you could too. Those death fetish forums, they're dangerous.
1: Yeah, this is a great episode to talk about that too because in the beginning there were all these red flags. You know, Diane shouldn't have let this guy into her home when she was alone. That was a red flag. Or Tammy and her terrifying experience full of red flags that were just ignored, ignored until Diane was murdered. And that's what we're doing right now by allowing these websites to exist. We have this pile, this huge mountain of red flags. Every single user in these forums is a red flag that we're ignoring.
0: That's beautifully said. It's the truth because this is dangerous. And we have to put a stop to it. And until we can put a stop to it, Alicia and I are going to keep on sharing this information through our podcasts, through books, through interviews, every way that we can to warn the public that this is happening. And in this case, with Russo's appeal, thankfully it was denied. And his sentence was that of life in prison. And he's still in prison. And that's another fetisher off the streets, thank God. But it wasn't soon enough. Diane paid the ultimate price because he was allowed to go free. He was out there unchecked, obsessing about death fetish. And I just believe that this is an example of why we have to do something to get these websites offline. Nobody, nobody should be able to go to these types of websites and get any kind of murder inspiration.
1: Yeah, this is like Pinterest for murderers. They're saving their little collection of strangulation images until they can do it in real life. And there's nobody that can convince me otherwise of that. There's just too much evidence to prove that this is where this leads to. If you consume this kind of content, this is where it's headed.
0: You're absolutely correct. And I'm just grateful that people are tuning in and I appreciate everybody listening today. I hope that you do take the time to consider what we've shared and that you will also make a decision to link arms with us, sign our petition. We're trying desperately to enforce obscenity laws throughout the United States. And if you want to know more about that, you can visit our website at deepdarksecretspodcast.com or you can find us on Facebook. We share a lot of great content on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok about obscenity laws and about these cases that can help get you fired up about what's happening right underneath your own nose in your own community. And we just ask that you would join us. Continue to to share our information and also tune in because together we're stronger and we can make a difference.
1: We need your help. We're two women and we're bringing awareness here, but it really does take a whole village to fix this kind of a problem. So please head over to the website, sign our petition. Just tell people about what we're doing. Tell your friends about our cause, our podcast. We need as many hands as we can get on board to take down this community. There's a lot of them, so there needs to be a lot of us too. Thank you so much for listening. I really do hope that everyone stays safe and aware. And remember to just keep being a light in your own community. Keep shining your own special light wherever you are and just remember to keep your lights on. For exclusive content from this episode and all other episodes, head on over to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash deepdarksecrets. Sign up and you'll be able to see some visuals that accompany each episode.